Desideratum is a Latin word. It means things that are desired as essential. This podcast celebrates storytelling as essential. I'm audiobook narrator Teresa Bakken, showcasing the talents of my author and narrator friends. I hope you'll hear an artist you love or find your next favorite wordsmith. Hi. Hi. Can you hear me okay? Yes, ma'am. What about on my end? You sound great. Awesome. Thank you for meeting with me. Are you kidding? Thank you for having me. I'm so excited about this. That's author James Wade, and this is episode 48. We're going to talk about James's novel, River Sing Out. He's going to tell us why his characters have such vivid dreams and why it's hard for him to give them names. But let's start with why James begins the novel with the origin of the Natchez River. You know, it's important to me uh, to start for this one in the beginning and to let folks know that the circumstances that the characters in River Sing Out are put in and the, the circumstances that they're trying to overcome have not always been like that. They won't always be like that. And even just Jonah and River, our two main characters, even their story is not unique. I refer to them as the boy and the girl a lot because it could be any boy and any girl that are put in this scenario. And and so by starting the novel this way and kind of talking about how the river was created in the first place, it gives the setting a little more agency and it separates the characters from the setting so that when you're reading the book, you feel like these characters are just passing through the setting, basically. Um, and that kind of plays into we're just passing through this life, passing through this world. And I felt like it set the tone that I wanted to set. And for lack of a better word, the vibe that I was going for for the novel. Yes, I'm so glad you even used that word, tone. From the very first words, I, I first sentences, I felt this sort of foreboding, um, this sense of danger, of violence just under the surface. And that tone, even though we're talking about really young characters, like you said, you call her the boy and the girl, which I really liked actually. You have the thin man, the old man, the you characterized each one of them. And to me, that lent it to feel more, it felt more like an epic tale that I really, I really enjoyed. Well, I, you know, if I were to say, you know, imagine Robert, then in your head, you're going to think, no matter how hard you try, you're going to think of whatever Robert looks like to you, whether it's someone you know named Robert, whether it's a characteristic that you attribute to Robert. I mean, we do this in society. We have Karens and Kyles, and you can use it to your advantage, you know, if you want to really exaggerate and name a character Sally Nosybody or something like that. Yes. But for, but for the most part, if I'm trying to establish characters, I, I really struggle with giving them names because to me, a name means so much of how I think of someone. And I don't want to have the reader start off on the wrong foot. And so um, it was easier to 
to say the thin man. And I do think it lends itself to a more lyrical prose and you don't get as bogged down in thinking of what that person with that name looks like or, or feels like. Yes. I'm going to go off on a tangent right there because we brought, we're talking about names. I noticed, and I don't know if it's in the acknowledgments or it's at the very back, maybe. Is your wife's name Jordan? Yes, it is. Like the river Jordan. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like the river, like the river Jordan. And my daughter is named Juniper, like the, like the tree. And so we are a very, uh, a very nature, <laughs> nature based family. That really says something about what you just said about names carrying so much, right? Names being so important to how we think of someone. Um, I think it's just interesting that in your personal life, that is that has rung true. The next thing I wanted to ask you about was water. There's a line that Carlson says about it, um, about it being a redemptive thing and that we can see ourselves in it. But again, you set this tone. He says, but we don't really see. So I just wondered, I guess, where all of this imagery for you came from for water, how you studied that, how you came to use that as a vehicle to tell the story. It, it may even be a little lazy on my part because water is such an obvious literary tool. Um, you know, you have these literary tools tied to water that are more often than not spiritual in nature. And so with Jonah and River, they they're on this quest to make it down the river to the Gulf, to the sea, the ocean. Um, and so if we're sticking with that, that metaphor as spiritual awareness or atonement, or even just truth of spirit, then, then the ocean is the ultimate, you know, the ocean is essentially as close as you can get to God or whatever your idea of God is. But if that's true, then that means in the beginning, they are far removed from that. You know, they have the water, they have the river, but it's just a trickle of this salvation that they're that they're seeking out. And then also you have throughout the novel, you have this almost ominous rain that it's it's these storms that are happening every day. And people are worried about flooding. The river's getting higher and higher. And so it kind of juxtaposes that potential salvation, that very positive light with the fact that sometimes we can we can be overrun. Yeah. You could lose yourself to it. You could, you could lose your, your sense of self. It's, it's the duality there basically of Jonah and river trying to get to this large body of water while also staying safe from water itself. And so it's a, it's a mixed bag, which is a point that I try to make in everything I write. It's, it's that it's gotta be about balance and that any extreme is usually a bad thing. Yeah. You've woven spirituality and God throughout this. It comes up several times from several different characters. You've really played beautifully with this idea of what makes what makes someone good. And oh, there's just crippling bad in this story. There's overwhelming, you know, it just, it washes over you as a reader. It's really it's a lot to take in. Where, where did all of that come from? Where did the, the, the oppressive poverty and this sort of, this tone of, of not good? Well, the, you know, there are facets of good and evil and everything everywhere. And one thing that I always say is, because I grew up in East Texas, I grew up very near the Natchez River. And 
you know, there are people from East Texas that read the novel and said, wow, you know, you don't make us sound that great. Um, yeah, hold on just one second. I'm, my daughter is screaming and I'm going to see if we can put a pin in that for two seconds. I can hear her. Yeah. Okay. I'm so sorry about that. That's okay. I'm a little jealous you have one that still makes that much noise. All mine are all grown up. I've seen you post pictures of her online. I think she's just as precious as precious can be. She she is amazing. But you were talking about like there is, I don't, it's not that there was a lack of good because actually I think your character Jonah has deep compassion about him. I resonate the most with Jonah and with old man Carson in part because they are the same character, just, you know, 80 years apart basically. Um, but they're, but they're similar in their thinking. And it's basically the ethos of the world is very harsh and dark and there's a lot of evil out there, but that kind of makes it even more important to be a good person, to, to find a reason to, carry on. I mean, if not, what, what are we doing? And yeah. it's the juxtaposition of Jonah having many of the same circumstances and hardships thrown at him that are thrown at our other characters. And yet he does not completely allow himself to go to the dark side. I mean, you, you do see him toe the line a little bit um, and, and maybe even, maybe even cross it a couple of times. Yes. But in the end, he always kind of comes back to this goodness, to this light. It kind of eliminates that as a total excuse, right? Because you, I, I do want to have three-dimensional characters um, to where even the bad characters, even the evil characters, you can kind of see how they got there a little bit. Let's pause there and listen to some of the tone and character James creates in Chapter 1. You're going to hear a few minutes from the audiobook narrated by Roger Clark, who has voiced about a hundred audiobooks, worked in theater and film, and is perhaps best known for portraying Arthur Morgan in Rockstar Games' Red Dead Redemption. This is Roger, narrating River Sing Out. Produced by Blackstone Audio. Written by James Wade. The bank man swallowed hard swallowed the truth of the situation and it sunk into his stomach and landed so hard he thought he might shit himself well mr curtis i don't i don't have much cash in the house he tried to swallow again but couldn't that's a lie john curtis shrugged don't matter though i ain't here for cash what uh what is it that you're here for done told you. I don't understand, the bank man said. He spoke softly. He closed his eyes. No, you don't. Most don't. Most don't understand because they can't understand. They spent their whole lives living in a world full of choices just like you. John Curtis looked up. What shoes are you going to wear today, Mr. Klein? He asked. What? You're shoeless, Mr. Klein. You've got no shoes upon your feet. But I'm guessing when you walk into that bank this morning, you'll have some fancy shoes on. So, which pair is it going to be? Uh, the bank man looked around. The brown pair, 
those there? The brown pair. Good choice. Sharp. So how come? What? The bank man asked again. Follow along, hoss. This ain't accounting or whatever the hell it is you do down there in your little glass office. How come you to choose them shoes? They, uh, they go with my suit. Really? Brown shoes with a gray suit? That goes together, does it? Yes. No, I don't. Easy, Mr. Klein. Take you a breath. Folks is having heart attacks at awful early ages nowadays. And you got yourself a stressful bank job and all. Just breathe and tell me if them brown shoes match up with your gray suit. Yes, they do. Well, all right, then. Go ahead and slip into them, then. Put them on. The bank man steadied himself on the dresser and slid his feet one after the other into the brown dress shoes. Fine job, Mr. Klein, fine job. Myself, I'm partial to the tradition of black with gray, but I must say the brown shoes do look handsome. John Curtis turned to the large man, still standing silent in the doorway. They do look handsome, don't they, Cade? he asked. Cade crossed his muscle-bound arms. Look like fancy shoes. John Curtis frowned and looked back at the bank man. I can't tell if he means that as a compliment or not, he said. Now, tell me, did you make that choice or did the suit? The bank man was in a full sweat. He felt his breath coming faster. I, I made the choice. But you needed to match the suit, ain't that right? Yes, but I picked the suit. Ah, you're sure right, Mr. Klein. John Curtis clapped his hands on his knees. You're sure right. But how come you to choose the suit? Is it because you like the color? Did your father wear a suit like that? His father before him? Did the girl at the shop tell you it looked good? Did she smile at you? Did you think to yourself, if only I had this suit, this gray suit, I bet this little old gal would spread right open for me. The bank man shook his head. He fought the tears. Mr. Curtis, do you believe I wronged you in some way? Is that why you're here in my home trying to intimidate me? Intimidate? Whoa, Mr. Klein, we're just talking. Talking about choices. If you don't want to tell me about the suit, that's okay. Nobody's getting ugly here. <laughs> but think, Mr. Klein, about why you wear that or any other suit. Think about why you do anything at all. How much of this life is truly your choice? I'm fascinated and always have been by what is and isn't inherent in us. And so I always wonder why are some individuals so violent and others aren't? Is it, a, is it nature overcoming nurture? Is it a lack of nurture in the beginning? Is it almost like a lagging evolution, right? I mean, if evolution is this great, big, overwhelming thing that takes so much time, then wouldn't it stand to reason that, that we're not all evolving at the same pace? They're, they're just questions 
that rattle around in, in my brain. And so when I was creating the character of John Curtis, I thought, okay, this guy is obviously a bad guy, but what made him that way? And does he think he's bad? Because that's another question, right? Mm. When we name somebody as evil or bad, do they accept that? Do they say, oh yeah, no, I'm definitely a bad person. Or do they think they're doing good things? Or do they think they're justified in the bad things that they're doing? And so for John Curtis, he has this awful and traumatic past. In part, it's an excuse for who he is. But then when you look at Jonah, you see that he probably, John Curtis probably could have gone a different way. And so, uh, and so that's the whole point, right? Yes. We make different choices based on different things. And sometimes if you line everything up and may have all the circumstances be the exact same, you'll still have individuals making a different choice and you, you can't find the one thread that led them to, to separate and to make those two different choices. And it's absolutely fascinating. And so John Curtis kind of is the, the amalgam of all of those things. There's a cycle of violence. There's a cycle of addiction. And that sometimes people are just caught in that cycle, right? The lives of these characters feel like, like repetition, like a cycle. Like I can almost think of this story as, like I said, an epic tale earlier, but also maybe as something that's that's musical, right? Like that has a tone that has it that comes back to a chorus, right? Right. Yes, ma'am. No, I think that's a I think that's a really great way to put it. And that it is it is a cycle. It's a cycle of poverty, a cycle of addiction, and a cycle of violence. And those things exist in in not just in the real world, but in the place where I grew up. And there's nothing because a lot of people have read the novel and kind of had this take that like, wow, it is, it's very dark. It's very violent. Right. And that's not untrue. The novel is fiction, but these circumstances, these situations are not fictional. Yes. The happiest times in the book are when the boy and the old man are, are together. They're playing chess, they're eating biscuits, they're drinking coffee. You know, those are the things that I love in life is the small moments. And so I wanted to make sure that those got in there because it's important. It's, I think it's more important in a, in a darker novel to have those moments of light, to have those moments of, of hope, just so that we can hang on to that as, as a reader, you know, and, and go, okay, this is not, this can still, this can still be okay. Well, they find humanity in each other. They find, they find comfort in each other's presence. And also you do that between Jonah and River, that they, though very broken, though very abused and hungry, you know, you just feel like nothing has ever filled them up. But when they, when they have these interactions together, you do, you get a sense of like, that's where humanity is, is in this, this connection between those two characters. I want to end with asking you about the thin man. The thin man talks about dreams and you have several places in this novel you've described really vivid dreams. And I just, I wondered where that came from for you. I have incredibly vivid dreams. Um, it's not just night terrors, which I do have and have, have seemingly always had, but even, even a dream that's just normal, you know, even a dream where I'm just hanging out and nothing bad is happening is so vivid that when I wake up, I'm 
wildly uncomfortable. Like I just, I, it's like, I still have a foot in that other world and I feel like I can't shake it. And it, and it gives me just massive anxiety to be honest. And, um, and so again, so much of what I write is just me trying to work out my own stuff. And so a lot of the characters have these vivid dreams and it's a way to kind of drop the rules of reality and, and further explore some of the, the thematic elements of, of the novel. Yeah. I think that's really fascinating that your mind, that the creativity of your mind doesn't shut off when you go to sleep. <laughs> yeah. I, I, could use, I could use some dreamless sleep. Yes. It would ultimately would interfere with your rest for sure. Well, the last question I always ask authors is if you had to explain to somebody, this is essential to me. And I think there's so much of this in your writing, actually. Like, I think you're a perfect author to ask this question of, except that maybe it'll be hard to answer it succinctly because I think you've written an entire novel that sort of explains it. But so what do you think? What do you think is most essential? You know, obviously this is cheating a little bit because I've heard your you know, your episodes and I've heard other people's answers and, and I knew a little bit to prepare for this question, but maybe that makes it harder because I was, you know, second, third guessing myself. But, but what I landed on um, essentially was courage. I think courage is the most essential because we're going to have failures and whether your hardships and whether your failures are worse or heavier than other people's, we still all have to have that courage to try again. And so to me, that is, that is essential. I think every great risk that has been taken, every great innovation has come directly in some form or fashion from courage. I think that's well said. I like that answer. I want to thank Lauren at Blackstone Publishing and Isabella at Blackstone Audio for connecting me with James and his work. I'll put a link to the River Sing Out page on Blackstone Publishing's website in the show notes, as well as a link to James's website, where you can find out about his next release, Beasts of the Earth, coming out with Blackstone this fall. This has been Episode 48. As always... Thanks for listening.